Hi, everyone. This is Fumi, your host of Hashtag R Racism. I just want to start off today's episode by thanking you all for your wonderful support over the last seven months. It's been an incredible journey so far, and I am so excited to continue sharing with you many more stories to come. I also wanted to let you know that we're going to go on summer break in August, so we'll be back on Wednesday, September 1st. For those of you going on holiday, have a safe and amazing one. And see you all again in a month. This podcast series is part of Hashtag Hour, a new grassroots project that brings together personal stories of all backgrounds to widen discussions on existing and important issues that are often silenced. Interested in the project or want to contribute to our work? Check out www.ourcontext.org. What does it mean to be a Portuguese woman living in Switzerland and in the UK? In this episode, Anna shares with us her experiences of being othered and essentialized as a Southern European studying and working in Europe. She's also going to be telling us the difficulty in addressing issues related to race and racism in Portugal and how that has been shaping her view on racism. I'm Fumi, this is Hashtag Racism, and this is the story of Anna. Anna is Portuguese and considers herself white. She grew up mainly in Portugal, but lived in different countries such as Brazil and the UK for her studies. Because she looks white, she says she grew up knowing that racism existed but thinking that she was exempt from it. But that all changed when she went to Switzerland for the first time to earn money so she could pursue her study abroad in Brazil. So before I went to Brazil, like, the scholarship wasn't enough. And I was looking for jobs for, like, like, I got given a scholarship to go to Brazil, but the money wasn't enough to be there for six months, so I was looking for work. And it was just, you couldn't find anything in Portugal at the time, not even like a waitress, not even a cleaner, like I was up for anything and there was nothing. So I ended up making contact with one girl that went to my high school in the UK and she used to work for this Swiss guy in the Alps, like in Rougemont, so it's like the French, still the French speaking area. And she used to like house sit for him and like make him breakfast, basically like take care of this guy's house and like make meals for him so he could go on hikes because he was a trustee of the school. So he had like kind of a network of students that would work for him over summer and stuff to to save up money and he paid quite well. So it turns out that he didn't have a job, but his secretary did. So she had had a baby and she needed someone to take care of him while she went to work and he was six months old. And I was like, well, you know, they were paying me 850 euros. And I thought, and you and I know that people get paid a lot more in Switzerland. And I was like, oh my God, that's so much money. And I just went and it was three months of, you know, I really liked the baby. I really liked the mount, like the, you know, they lived in this chalet in the mountains and, but it was the first time, like the mom was English and the dad was French. And it was the first time that I felt typecast. I would have these conversations with the dad because he was a photographer working from home. And he would say things like, because I didn't do much apart from work in the evenings. I was actually still studying and like studying for finals. So this was over Christmas break before going to Brazil. And I had to study for finals and like submit them online and stuff. And he was just like, oh, why don't you go like meet your own people? Like there's so many Portuguese people in this village. And I was just like, I mean, I'm just here to work and I have to study in the evenings and weekends. So like, I don't, I don't feel the need to connect to other people. I'm just here temporarily. And it was this persistent thing that kept coming up. Like one time he said, oh, um, you know, 
your people, and literally these were the words that were used, your people, like Portuguese people, you just all, like you work really hard, you save it all, and you stay like rats in your own little uh, holes. Like you save it all up and you don't enjoy life. And I was just like, at the time I was like 20, and I think I couldn't tell what he was doing because I had never gone through any moment in my life where anyone had ever questioned me or like my worth or said things about me that I didn't get to say myself. And um, so, yeah, I think that was the first first time that I felt like mm, this feels really uncomfortable. And this is I don't know why this person is seeing me in this way, but I brushed it off. I went to Brazil. I had a great time. A few years later, Anna went back to Switzerland to continue her studies and work on the side. Again, she says she encountered a number of occasions where she was othered and essentialized for being Portuguese. I was working at this international NGO, and there was this one time, and because they know the criticism I have towards my own culture, I feel like maybe they were Swiss people, they felt like a license to say things about Portuguese people. And there was this one time at lunch where they were like, oh yeah, we always notice, you know, when there's a football match with Portuguese teams. And I was like, why is that? Oh, because, you know, you get really loud. And last year, like, you really trashed the town. And I was just like, you? And also, like, what's the problem of us being loud? Like, do you just, again, do you want us to be little rats and, like, be under your houses just working away? So it's, it's having these concepts of who you are being imposed on you all the time. And yeah, and I felt it as well in French classes. Like, I, was, I signed up for these French classes and at some point, you know, we were just going through the manual and, and there was this example of talking about different professions and the French teacher, she was from Bretagne. So she was like, oh, uh, so we have today the concierge. And so she started describing the profession of the concierge, which, you know, to describe professions is to use verbs, to, to conjugate and like identify people. Like it's totally a normal exercise to learn a language. But then she started asking questions and mind you, this was like a group of 20 people from all over the world, all kinds of races. And I felt singled out, like, so she basically was like, so how do, where do concierges usually come from? And she just looks around the room and then looks at me. And I was just like, I didn't say anything. And she didn't like, cause no, everyone was like, why is this question being asked? And she just said, Portugal, like, you know, in Switzerland, it's the same as in France. And I was just like, okay, it's not a lie. I had a lot of interactions with concierges, even on behalf of coworkers that couldn't speak French in Portuguese because it's just the reality. And then uh, she goes to the next step and how do they usually look? I was just like, why are we going there? <laughs> like, and then she said, you know, basically she insinuated that they're usually like chubby women that have a unibrow and a bit of a beard. And I have to say to you, this is a consistent stereotype about Portuguese women, even in Brazil, that we're like town folk that have like huge unibrows and a bit of a beard. And to see that cast back at me in a classroom with people from all over the world and where I was being like directly targeted, and she never had those remarks about anything else during that whole course. And this happened a couple times. We're like bringing up Portugal out of nowhere. And I was just like, why, why, <laughs> like, why me? And I think it's this feeling that some people must feel, you know, when they're discriminated against, be it racism or, you know, any other discrimination is, why am I being singled out? And why, like, I know I'm different. 
here? Like, why do you need to state this in such a way that makes me feel like I don't belong? And I think it's that, like, I don't have an issue with my identity. I do have an issue with others taking that and putting it up against me and making assumptions about who I am that are not correct. And yeah, like, I think those experiences in Switzerland are the ones that I, I personally felt discriminated against. And I thought that I was kind of exempt, I have to say, like, until it happened to me, because I had had, like, partners that were not white, I had had, like, grown up in, like, multiracial environments, I was just like, yeah, like, I have a lot of things that I like here, but I'm not going to have any of the pain. And then I did. And even if it was a very different kind of pain and not systemic, which, like, I'm not saying that I'm oppressed, because I, I don't feel I am at all. But Anna is currently living in the UK. She says the perception of her as a Portuguese citizen in the UK contrasts quite differently to the way she was perceived in Switzerland. In the UK, that people perceive Portugal is as their summer paradise and like the place they go on holidays to like unwind and relax. And that's fine. But there is a little bit of an uncomfortable aspect to it for me, which is, you know, like, I used to go on summer holidays to the south of Portugal with my family. Like, it's basically a beach destination. It's just warm. Like, we have, you know, we have a huge coast, but it's just really cold everywhere else. So you go south. And I remember, like, being a kid and being in Algarve, this very well-known destination. And the amount of, like, <laughs> drunk British old men was just intimidating at times. Like, when you went, like, sometimes after going to the beach, we would go home for dinner, make dinner, and go out and go for a walk. In like the town center in Albufeira, for example, which is a very touristy area. We didn't usually go there, but when we did, it just felt like, I guess, the concept that people have of Ibiza, except older people. And it feels like it's where people in the UK with means go to shed their skin and shed their like worries. And totally fine that they do that. But there is kind of a a huge divide between the Portugal they experience and the Portugal that most people live in. And I think that's with any holiday destination, of course, and including myself, when I travel to a country, I will not experience, you know, the like no matter how much off the beaten track I go, I will never experience what it's like to live there as a person from that country. But if you go to Algarve, there's like all these British pubs, there's all these restaurants. Like I was there this summer after like five years of not going because I was just living abroad. And we went to this, um, like, close to the flat that we rented, there was mostly British pubs or all the cafes and bars would cater to British people. So you'd have, like, even weird stuff like chicken tikka masala, which is, like, why would you have chicken tikka masala in Portugal? And, like, they had Sunday roast, which is a huge thing in the UK, you know, just, like, a lot of meat and vegetables and root vegetables on Sundays. So I'd say that... In the UK, there's less of the xenophobic component in terms of I haven't had encounters even in my school and stuff where people told me Portuguese people are like this, because I think that the people that migrate here are a lot more from many more different social and economic backgrounds than the ones in Switzerland and France. There's very well-educated Portuguese young people that come to the UK to work pre-Brexit. And yeah, like I'd say that it's a bit more of a diverse picture and because there's so many foreigners, like there's, it's a bit more difficult for people to stereotype you. But I do feel there is a stereotypical 
there there's basically there's this episode that's just funny like i don't I'm, i don't think it's representative of everyone here but there is this book like i was in waterstones between lockdowns you know a bookshop and i saw this book that said like the paradise of the south or something so it's about the british it's actually like a social study about like the imaginary narrative around the mediterranean and the european south related to the uk how the uk has created this narrative about the south and i was like man only a british person would buy this book like and then <laughs> and i was in the queue and i saw like at least i mean he was just a white tall guy i assumed he was british purchasing the book so i'd say that like there is a undercurrent of oh you come from like a warm sunny paradise country and i'm just like well if i could have this job and the salary i would live there you can be assured of that <laughs> like and i think that people have a misconception of what's possible in portugal for young people and for people in general because the when they go there it's just everything's cheap everything's wonderful it's like yeah most of us can't afford what you're doing when you're there and most of us can't actually live in our own countries if we have if we want longer term plans it's just very difficult So yeah, I'd say that it's it's less insidious compared to Swiss and, and and I'd say like French interactions with Portuguese people where it's it's very like class oriented and quite xenophobic. Uh whereas here it's more like it's it's as if I guess it's like most Europeans see like Caribbean people, I guess like we're just seen as this like happy sunny people that live in like a really warm place with that's just all year round amazing. So, I'd say that's not such a negative stereotype, but sometimes it's just a little like maybe you should get to know a little bit more and not just go to the beach every time. For the longest time, Anna had a difficult time understanding why she was perceived and treated in Switzerland negatively. It wasn't until she recently spoke to her grandfather about her experiences that she slowly started making sense of it. When I told him about what happened to me in Switzerland, it was after some time like when these things happen to you, it takes time for you to digest them and put them into their place and also like listening to other people's experiences and being like, yeah, something similar happened to me not because, you know, I'm a person of color at all, uh, but because of other aspects of my background that played into this. And you know, when he when I told him that, he said that he just put in a historical panorama of basically portuguese people that migrated to france and switzerland were these generations were prior to the dictatorship so these were people that were able to escape the dictatorship you couldn't leave the country unless you were going to serve abroad in the military or to populate the colonies as they would say which is just appalling and disgusting but so you couldn't leave the country and these people managed to escape and in france they were called the pianoir because a lot of people didn't have shoes and they like just got into like contraband vans and and with merchandise and just got stowed away to France and you know and i didn't know about this history of migration and how people that migrated during that time were largely couldn't read or write because under portuguese dictatorship only a very very few people went to school and just kind of getting that shape of history fit into my own story which is a lot more recent really helps but i'd say that my experience as a portuguese woman abroad have been validated by my family and i think there's a understanding of that because they themselves have traveled and i think they have felt that at some level of being you know typecast into a poor country in general and as poor people 
which in their case, like especially my granddad's generation, they have no problem with like that is his origin and he doesn't, it's not like our generation where we really want to confront those things and want to have conversations. Anna says that prior to talking about Switzerland with her grandfather, she never spoke about issues of race and racism with her family or anyone. Why? Because of a persistent myth that exists in Portugal. In Portugal, we have this myth that we were the good colonizers uh, in the sense that, you know, like French, um, Belgian, British colonizers, they usually like, this is a myth, okay? This is not a real story. If you dig into the history, all colonialism and imperialism is awful. But you know, this is the national narrative we have is that we were great discoverers, a tiny nation of ambitious people. And you know, we went to, we discovered the route to India and then we went to Brazil. And you know what happened? We just mixed with the local people. We stayed. Uh, whereas the French, the Belgian, and everyone else just like extracted resources and were good because we are mixed ourselves, first of all. And second, we mixed there and we stayed. And you know, you, we even have like our last king, he ran away to Brazil with the um, royal family in the 19th century. And basically he just stayed over there and he was the one that declared the independence of Brazil. <laughs> And I think like this mythology that we have keeps us from having conversations about power and, and racism in our own society. And, you know, I think Brazil is a whole world apart because, you know, they've been independent for 200 years, more than 200 years. Not to say that, like, I think the racial issues they have are very much to deal with our own. But I'm no one to say, like, I lived there for a while. I've visited quite often, but I don't have a say in how things are over there. Whereas in Portugal, yeah, we just have this mythology of integration and, and it's not the French kind of integration where the state is like, like you, you know, uh, where the state kind of tells you, you are French now. It's not a citizenship based thing. It's more, it's more insidious. Like I'd say it's, it's, it's kind of a, everyone can be Portuguese kind of thing and everyone has the right to be. And I, I but then and you'd think that everyone is like in general, you don't question if someone's black and they're Portuguese in urban settings, at least where I grew up, because I'd say this is very different from rural Portugal. You wouldn't question where that people's where that person's really from. Like, I've never seen that happen to friends of mine. Maybe it does. But like, that's not something that, for example, my own family did or even asked of friends that I had or their own friends. So it's not like the US in that sense. But there is a very subtle way of telling people apart. So you have like, we call them social neighborhoods. So those are neighborhoods for people that are very low on, on the social class end of the ladder and do not have enough means. So the state, like it's just social housing, basically the state gives you a more affordable rent and they usually build the buildings for you, etc. And it's unsaid, but usually people of color and people of African descent are people that live in you know social neighborhoods i wouldn't say like my own neighborhood we had a, it was a working class neighborhood and we had a lot of different people but the national concept of when crime happens it is in social neighborhoods when we had like a huge scandal when you know like i think there were two young black men that were killed maybe five years ago by police in in one of those neighborhoods and our first big anti-racism discussion at a national level like broadcast and you'd just be surprised by the reluctance that people have 
uh, to talk about this because they will always say, oh, I have a black friend. My family is even mixed. Like, oh, or, or the best is like, oh, I lived in Angola back during the colonial times, you know, because Angola had like independence when we left in 74. And that's really troubling. Like to feel like white Portuguese people identify with non-white Portuguese people through colonial history, and yet they think they were right, is troubling to say the least. And like within my family, there's ways that they've been other that are not related to colonial history, but appearance in that my granddad, for example, all his pictures as a young man, he does not look necessarily white. Like people used to call him the Indian and there's a pejorative term used for people, like brown people. And he just used to get called that. Do you think he was Indian? No. Was he anything other than like raised in the Portuguese countryside? No, like that's just how he looked. And yet people had all sorts of speculations about where he came from in his village, you know? And the same with my mom, like, she has very, very curly hair. Her skin can get very, very brown. And everyone, my dad's side of the family was always like, oh, she's a cabrita. Like, so there's all these terms as well that people use very informally to describe pe mixed race people. And cabrita, I think, is just someone that's like, of you know, a black parent and a white parent. And my mom is from pe both, pe like both people would consider themselves, I don't think they even think about it, but would consider themselves white. And... So you have this illusion that racism does not exist. We don't see color. Everyone's Portuguese. We are mixed ourselves. Like we're not fully white ourselves. So why would we discriminate against specifically black people? So that's the hardest. And there's only a couple books released in the last five years or so, which are really good to talk about racism in Portugal and in the Portuguese narrative, like national narrative. Because yeah, we don't talk we talk about like the colonial wars and we talk about, basically when we talk about Portuguese colonialism, we talk about the discoveries as if all these countries were empty before. And we never talk about cultures that existed there prior to us and that still do. I only learned these things when I studied anthropology at a bachelor's level. And I'd have to say that is a very niche decision. <laughs> like most Portuguese people would not get access to first that level of education and second, like that analysis. Against the background of her experiences, Anna has the following to say about what she thinks it takes to be actively anti-racist. I think that as someone that's like from my bachelor's, you know, has been reading like decolonial literature and really has always been outraged during my academic studies, at least about racism and discrimination and oppression, etc. I think when you have access to that level of education, you can kind of fall in the trap and be like, oh, I'm woke. I'm fine. I'm progressive. I, you know, I check myself. And it's actually, sometimes things are very ingrained and you to be actively anti-racist is to first be willing to check yourself continuously and not just as an exercise in like, oh, I'm so good. No, just actually look at yourself and look at how you're feeling. I still notice like here in London, for example, there's a very big Afro-Caribbean population. And I still notice like, even again, even if I grew up, not in a necessarily white homogenous background, even if, you know, I've been in relationships with black men, like even then I still walk the street. And if there's like two or three black men walking towards me, I'm still, I still like, there's some, something in me that's still a little bit like, mm. and I have the same reaction with white men here. So I don't know if it's just men in general in groups that kind of scare me, but I think there's an added layer 
to race in that. And so I think never assuming that you are anti-racist at all times of your life. And then the second thing is this white person is like actually recognizing when you are benefiting and where you should be giving that up and where your limits are as well in terms of understanding. Like, I think sometimes in the past I've tried to be as empathetic as I could or sympathetic in, in this sense, but empathy, like there's only so much you can understand through a rational conversation. And then there's the limit of experience and like acknowledging that if you are white, you will not have gone through those things. Do not put any gender oppression on the same level. Do not put like, don't make it an oppression Olympics and try to relate from that place. Like it can be useful, but when you're listening to someone, I mean, like, don't take that and be like, oh, but I, or I can relate because I, if you have that space with that person and that's something that you are used to, totally fine to share completely different experiences. But if, if it's someone like actually having a conversation with you for one of the first times and they really just want to share, don't make it about you and don't make anti-racism, like don't make you being anti-racist about you being anti-racist, like make it because you do want people of color, black people, people of all sorts that are not white to advance in society and not just because you are a good person. Like I've seen that in myself, like, you know, consuming a lot of anti-racist literature and black culture and stuff and being like, oh yeah, like I know the spectrum of experience. I'm like, no, no, I really don't. And knowing the limit of your knowledge. You can find more information about racism in Portugal and racism aimed towards Portuguese people in Europe, as well as other articles, books and videos, and I recommend people to take a look at on racism on our website www.ourcontext.org You can also find a transcript of this episode on our website in English, French, German, and Italian. If you have a personal story to share, reach out to us on our website, Instagram, or Twitter. You can find us by typing in hashtag our underscore racism. This is Fumi and hashtag our racism. See you in September! This episode was produced and edited by me, Fumi. Introductory score by Luca Nioi. Other music by Beat Morse, Crescent Music, and Fugu Vibes. A big thank you to Anna for taking her time and sharing with us some of her painful memories and sharing with us thought-provoking and crucial reflections on this issue.